This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Julia Pugh and Chloe Logue. Uh, Julia is a Macmillan Gynecology Clinical Nurse Specialist and Psychosexual Therapist at Christie Hospital. And uh, Chloe is at the Christie Cancer Hospital and the Manchester Foundation Trust. I want to welcome both of you. Thank you so much for participating in this uh, podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Um, we're really happy to get the message out there, and uh, it's something that we're really passionate about. Fantastic. So um, first I want to congratulate you on, uh, on the manuscript that is uh, to be published in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and it's a manuscript that titles Psychosexual Morbidity, in women with ovarian cancers. And, and first, again, let me congratulate you on the great work that you do. I think this is obviously a very important topic for many of our cancer survivors. So I wanted to start uh, with you, Chloe. I wanted to, uh, let's start by discussing uh, what is psychosexual morbidity and why is this an important issue to explore in patients with gynecologic cancers? Is, is there a consensus in the definition of psychosexual morbidity? So thanks. Um, so to, to start with, psychosexual dysfunction more generally uh, refers to problems involving different phases of the sexual response cycle. So that includes interest or arousal, um, orgasm, uh, sexual pain or penetration disorders, and, and these can all cause distress. Um, psychosexual morbidity, more specifically, refers to psychological or psychosomatic sexual difficulties. But often underlying these, or, or contributing to them, or arising from uh, the psychosexual morbidity, are physical sexual difficulties. So we, we really firmly believe that um, to really assess and, and to treat someone with, with these difficulties, you need to... Um, clinicians need to consider both the psychological and the physical aspects of the sexual difficulties. Um, in, in gynecological cancer, um, psychosexual morbidity is important because we know that compared to what's documented in the general population, um, it's more prevalent in gynecological cancers. Um, there was a FIGO cancer report from 2018 um, which reported that up to 43% um, of women in the general population can um, experience sexual problems. However, this goes up to 90% in women with uh, gynecological cancers. Mm. And certainly we've seen a similar picture in women um, specifically with ovarian cancer in that they have um, greater levels of distress from, from sexual problems um, compared to the general population. So really we feel that um, as clinicians uh, treating these women, um, given that they have greater um, prevalences and greater rates of these issues, it's really our responsibility and, and part of our care. We should be, as part of that, we should be um, inquiring about these issues and trying to treat them. Um, however, we found that despite being a priority for women, this is, is not really being talked about very much um, and certainly not, not documented very much. Yeah. Um, it, it's a priority for women. It impacts their quality of life, um, but it, it could be relatively easy um, to offer simple solutions and just open up the discussion. Um, regarding the consensus, uh, there's, there's not really a, a consensus in the definition that we found for psychosexual morbidity. Um, different studies are exploring and, and measuring different things and using different questionnaires. Um, so really, this, this is something which we found from the, um, from the literature review, um, that we need a greater consensus in, in what we look for and how we measure it. Um, yeah. yeah. 
And Chloe, I mean, you, you mentioned some some of the uh, the uh, frequency of this problem. Uh, I was wondering if you can stress again on those points. And and I'm also wondering, um, is there really a, a, a lot of accuracy in that frequency? Because I would imagine that there is some component of failure of documentation, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, the studies that we looked at um, reported that psychosexual morbidity affects the majority of, of women with um, with ovarian cancer, up to three quarters, really. We found that up to 75% were experiencing some form of, of sexual difficulty or uh, psychosexual morbidity. Mm. Um, however, it's the, the, as, as was mentioned, the type of questionnaire um, used and, and the, the parameters which are being measured um, heavily impacts on, on the uh, prevalence which is documented and, and who is picked up on. Um, the, the questionnaires used at the moment are quite limited, and there's only really one questionnaire which is validated for women with ovarian cancer, um, and that really impacts uh, sort of um, how, how much it picks up. And it really, they, they tend to focus on the, the physical symptoms, and so may miss uh, women who are more um, who are struggling more with kind of the psychological aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding the failure of documentation, certainly there was a paper that found, it, despite being a priority, that it wasn't documented at all by clinicians. Um, and so this, we have to infer um, that it, it means that it's not being discussed and therefore not being addressed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, Julia, I want to jump over to you now. Uh, with regards to um, women with ovarian cancer, uh, why are, are women with ovarian cancer and this diagnosis at a particularly higher risk of psychosexual uh, morbidity? Um, what is it about their treatment that perhaps predisposes them to to um, this uh, this matter? Yeah, so I think there's been, obviously women around the world are treated differently and it depends. Many women are um, uh, we know are diagnosed at a late stage. And, you know, the impact of just a, a, a late diagnosis of advanced disease, incurable disease, uh, you know, uh, quite, quite a uh, big sort of trajectory of treatment going forward. This anticipation of uh, chemotherapy, which we know causes alopecia in most cases, um, you know, the hair loss, the body image changes from surgery, scarring, stomas. You know, there's a, a kind of long list of what reasons that women would experience quite significant impact in how they think and feel about themselves um, you know I think there's a there's a large um, uh, a lot of information from women talking about you know how they feel less womanly having had their um, you know reproductive organs removed as well and this not even um, this being for women who are even uh, after they've been diagnosed um, you know and not childbearing potential but they just still feel by losing their their womb and their reproductive organs, this has a a big psychological impact on them. Mm -hmm. I think just relationships in general, you know, are hugely impacted by such a a significant and, and, uh, you know, pretty horrific treatment at times, Um, you know, and that shift from being a partner of a patient to sometimes the partner becoming the primary caregiver is is often causes a lot of withdrawal from a relationship and, Mm -hmm. and concerns. Um, so this, there's a lot of reasons that these women uh, will be impacted and, and have a high risk of that kind of psychosexual morbidity that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what, what, what do you consider are like the main barriers to women um, discussing these psychosexual issues with their physicians? And as a follow-up question to that, I, I was wondering if physician gender have any impact on this matter. 
quite a few barriers. One of them being, you know, women often don't feel that if if the clinician isn't bringing the issue up, that it's difficult for them to then prioritize something around, uh, you know, sex and intimacy. You know, people feel lots more comfortable talking about bladder and bowel function than they do often about these kind of often very embarrassing issues. Mm -hmm. I think that comes also about clinicians not feeling like they've got a lot of expertise or much to offer in terms of addressing those concerns. And so there's a sort of sense of this is kind of collateral damage, you know, that happens as a consequence, which I think is really unfair for our for our women with ovarian cancer, because in other cancer groups, like, say, for example, urological cancers, prostate cancer, breast cancers, we talk about these things much more up front um, because we know the impact that it has. So I think it's, you know, raising awareness that this is an issue for, for, for clinicians, empowering patients to talk about it. Um, in terms of what you asked about the, the sort of impact of gen, the physician's gender, I'm not sure that I've, I've seen that, but I just think there's a general reluctance from clinicians if they don't feel that they've got the appropriate training mm-hmm. to really be, um, you know, talking to patients about it. And so, you know, there's work being done in other cancer groups that I mentioned around these sort of tools or educational tools or even facilitating a conversation with a patient that might help to address some of these barriers. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought up the really very important point is that perhaps often it's an issue with with the clinicians that they just don't feel that they know how to really properly address uh, some of these issues because of the lack of training that they have had. Um, So now, Chloe, you you compiled information for this publication uh, from 4,116 women, I believe, what were their main findings of your of your study? So we found from uh, the literature review um, that we we looked um, that we looked at specifically in, in ovarian uh, cancer in women with epithelial ovarian cancer that up to seventy five percent of these women uh, report negative changes in, in their sex lives following the diagnosis. And of those sexually active, uh, vaginal dryness affects eighty one to eighty seven percent. Um, pain or dyspareunia, as uh, so pain during sex, affects 77%, um, and approximately 75%, so three-quarters of the women uh, with epithelial ovarian cancer, um, incur clinically significant sexual morbidity, is, is what we found, um, meaning that it impacts their quality of life. Um, so really what, what we've taken from it is that it remains one of the most important issues for women with epithelial ovarian cancer. Some studies found that uh, women ranked their sexual function or um, their sexual difficulties um, in their top three uh, priority symptoms. Um, however, it's not being detected or managed adequately um, mm. according to the literature available. Um, we found that it's not being documented by clinicians and therefore um, potentially not being discussed uh, by clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in some work that we've been doing, we've found that uh, many women with ovarian cancer don't recall being asked about sexual function and have felt embarrassed to, to bring it up. Sure. Um, we found something interesting in that the, the um, aim of treatment, uh, such as curative versus symptom control, um, can have an impact on the tolerance that patients have for for quality of life symptoms, such as uh, sexual uh, dysfunction. Um, And so this really highlights that clinicians need to be um, prompting women and asking women um, alongside their kind of treatment decisions um, about these issues because the women might not feel comfortable or uh, might just try and tolerate these symptoms um, alongside their their treatment. Um, 
So really, we, we feel that it needs the care needs to be more quality-focused. And in the UK, we have um, an initiative which is Living With and Beyond Cancer, mm-hmm. um, which focuses on um, as cancer becomes a more chronic disease and some conditions such as ovarian cancer, um, and people are living with it for, for longer with, with new treatments um, as they become available, mm-hmm. um, we need to really get better at addressing the, the toxicities of these, these treatments um, and empower patients and clinicians to, to open this discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Mm-hmm. There was there was one other finding which I just kind of want to raise was um, there was a, a uh, correlation between certain uh, comorbidities such as anxiety and depression or cardiovascular comorbidities and, mm-hmm. and psychosexual morbidity um, and whether this kind of just reflects on global reduced quality of life um, if a patient has anxiety and depression or, or cardiovascular comorbidities perhaps if they're, if they're less uh, mobile or less fit generally and this just highlights, uh, as Julia mentioned, um, just reflecting on the patient as a whole and, and uh, trying to, to treat uh, potentially their, their comorbidities may actually have uh, a knock-on effect of improving their psychosexual uh, function. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Really very important findings. And when you mention, um, you know, certainly if, if physicians obviously want to get involved in, in if they're interested in providing a validated tool to assess um, some of these psychosexual uh, morbidities in, in ovarian cancer survivors. Um, do you have any particular questionnaire that you would recommend as the ideal tool uh, for these physicians? So we're quite limited in um, sexual question, in questionnaires and evaluating sexual function. And the only um, sexual function questionnaire which is validated for women with ovarian cancer is the EORTC OV28. Mm-hmm. Um, this was used by just less than half of the papers that we looked at, um, by just over 46%. Um, and this questionnaire itself is quite limited in terms of uh, its evaluation of sexual function. It only has uh, four questions, which are just rank- rankings from one to four mm-hmm. um, of, of sexual function. Um, so it's, it's really quite limited in terms of what's available. Um, sexual function uh, could also be, um, is, is also quite commonly um, assessed with the female sexual function index. Um, and this was used by just less than a quarter of the papers. Mm-hmm. Um, this questionnaire is solely focuses on, um, on sexual function. However, it focuses more on the physical aspects and so therefore could miss sort of the psychological um, elements mm-hmm. um, and certainly we found that because of perhaps because of the uh, lack of um, very detailed questionnaires to explore uh, sexual function um, in, in gynecological cancers um, a lot of uh, the questionnaires used their own or kind of uh, the authors created their own questionnaires which um, obviously weren't validated and therefore it's difficult to really assess um, or compare results from those um, so really it just highlights to us that there, there are questionnaires available out there if someone wants to do something immediately but certainly we need a greater consensus in terms of what we use um, mm-hmm. and taking into account the limitations of the questionnaires. Like a lot of them can only be used in women who've had sex in the last four weeks. So if someone's sexually inactive um, for, for reasons due to their, their cancer or um, due to uh, other reasons, it could potentially miss those, those women. And mm-hmm. um, so really development of new questionnaires, which are more detailed, um, might be something which is, is beneficial for, for this area. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Chloe, one, one uh, additional question to you, um, risk factors. Are there any key risk factors or, or patient characteristics for um, psychosexual morbidity? 
So yes, um, we had a look um, at risk factors and tried to uh, come up with potential predictors from the literature reviews that might guide the clinician um, in terms of identifying women more at risk of, of psychosexual um, morbidity. Um, and we found that women who were younger in age, um, and su that suggests sort of a premenopausal status at diagnosis, mm -hmm. they were at greater risk. Um, certainly that makes sense if the treatment then uh, removes, uh, whether it's surgery or, or chemotherapy, uh, lowers their estrogen levels. Um, sure. We also found that the aim of treatment, um, such as curative versus uh, symptom control, that can impact the treatment, um, sorry, impact the, the tolerance they have for um, the psychosexual morbidity mm -hmm. um, and the extent of surgery. So if women had um, uh, lymph node resection, pelvic lymph node um, resection and um, there was a, a correlation between this and reduced ability to have an orgasm at 12 months mm -hmm. and certainly more courses of chemotherapy were associated with greater um, psychosexual dysfunction and um, as alluded to before um, the comorbidities such as cardiovascular and um, comorbidities and anxiety and depression mm -hmm. they were both associated with um, increased psychosexual dysfunction yeah um, now Julia, um, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what are some of the like the main presenting symptoms usually. Yeah, so I think um, you know what's been what we've tried to sort of bring out from the review is that you know you've got the psychological and the physical, and so physical things like vaginal dryness, um, dyspareunia or pain during penetration, um, you know, are, are really key, but also around loss of desire, loss of interest. Um, you know, other kind of um, postmenopausal symptoms, vasomotor symptoms, uh, hot flushes, those sorts of things are also going to have an impact on, um, on, on how women feel about kind of engaging with intimacy and sex. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, the body image changes, the negative body image changes that can happen and the lack of adjustment. So, you know, often, you know, with any kind of body image change, whether that's scarring or stromas or, or hair loss, we recognize that we need to support patients with that change. It's always an adjustment. We can't necessarily um, make it all better, but we can help people as they adjust through that. Um, and so those are often the, some of the things that people will talk about. Um, so I think, you know, we, we hopefully as clinicians, we're getting much more um, uh, skilled at, 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 at seeking out or speaking to patients around the mental health and around mm -hmm. anxiety and depression and looking for those sorts of symptoms. And I think we can do the same in this kind of context and really, um, you know, speaking to them. And I know we're going to talk about what that looks like. And the other thing I just want to say about this is often um, patients might allude to a, a concern or even like a fantasy that they might have. So I've spoken to patients around, uh, you know, who've had surgery, who have some real concerns or, or ideas, shall we say, about, um, you know, their vaginas being sewn up, if you like, mm -hmm. or, you know, a great big gaping hole where their womb has been taken away. Mm -hmm. And those kind of fantasies can really feed a worry and concern and, uh, you know, complete um, reluctance to kind of engage in any intimacy. So I think we have to be mindful about, you know, what we're doing, uh, you know, to, to support women with their, their cancer diagnosis, but what also some of the uh, issues that they might be feeling. No, absolutely. And you, Julie, in, in your discussion, you, you mentioned a, a term or a concept of something called permission giving. Can you tell us as to what that means? Yeah, so I think this is really important. We're basically saying to people, 
it's okay to talk about this. This is a part of who you are. This is a part of being human, um, you know, and it's okay to open up the discussion to say that if it's relevant for you and you want to talk about it, there's help here for you. Mm-hmm. And um, it's about also normalizing the conversation around sex and intimacy and the fact that we know that our treatments are going to impact that for women, that area of their lives, and we want to offer them some support in addressing that. So I think it's really key that um, clinicians recognize their role and responsibility, not about fixing it all, you know, mm-hmm. certainly not, but, all, but just about saying it to the, pay, to the person, the woman that is in front of them, you know, and their partner, it's okay to talk about this um, concern. And lots of other people might have struggles in this area. We'd like to support you with that. Yeah. And, and as a follow-up question, um, you, you know, you just mentioned the partners, and obviously uh, very key, very important. What are some common misconceptions by the partners that may lead to psychosexual morbidity? Yeah, so I think this is um, an incredibly uh, important issue, something anecdotally that we're dealing with a lot, but actually is really missing from the literature around that patient's partner view and understanding what their concerns are. But Often what we hear or what are the concerns from the partner is obviously they don't want to hurt their partners. Mm-hmm. So they might be reluctant to engage in any intimacy because they're concerned that, you know, they might uh, they might be hurting them or that they believe that the woman is more fragile somehow. Um, and, you know, that can just kind of spiral into the very negative impacts on your relationship where the woman herself isn't feeling desired or wanted. Um, and then there's a lot around, um, again, you know, I mentioned before about fantasies or, or concerns or ideas that people come up with. So mm. I've certainly had patients, t- partners tell me that they feel that they might have given their partner cancer or they might mm. be able to contract cancer mm-hmm. if they start having sex with, with their partner. And likewise with chemotherapy, you know, we, we put, um, you know, for patients having chemotherapy, we post it everywhere basically saying, you know, make sure you're using lots of contraception. And we deal mm-hmm. with patients and partners who haven't used contraception for years and years and years. And it's basically like putting a barrier up, isn't it, by saying, you know, a physical barrier, but also sure. a metaphysical barrier of saying, stop having sex, you know, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've done quite a lot of work with our, our chemotherapy nurses here to sort of, as they talk about these things, how yeah. do you actually say you know, we, we want you to be safe, but, but we also want to encourage you to be intimate. Absolutely. Really, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, uh, now, Chloe, uh, uh, getting on to what can we do about it? What, what do you consider are key interventions that, that will benefit patients with psychosexual morbidity? important for clinicians um, and really all, all team members who are involved with women um, with ovarian cancer, whether it be the, the doctor or the clinical nurse specialist or the physiotherapist who sees them, it's really important for them to um, assess both the physical and, and the psychological aspects of the team, really. So um, in terms of uh, kind of the psychological side, um, certainly psychological therapies such as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy might help to tackle body image difficulties, uh, especially in, in the younger women where it seems to be um, more more prevalent or uh, more severe, um, and in whom relationship concerns can predict anxiety risk. Um, and certainly um, from the kind of psychological side, but perhaps more from a medical model, um, treating anxiety and depression might actually help their uh, psychosexual morbidity and and 
uh, help from from that side, but that would be more of the role of the clinician. Um, in terms of more physical treatments, um, a really simple measure, which uh, perhaps wouldn't be suggested if, if the conversation isn't opened up, is just vaginal lubricants. Um, they provide mm-hmm. a simple simple intervention to alleviate um, the dyspareunia um, and also vaginal moisturizers, um, which can improve the vaginal tissue health mm-hmm. and, and that can reduce the systemic absorption of, of local treatments, mm-hmm. like local uh, hormonal therapies. Um, one thing there regarding sort of um, hormone replacement therapy, um, there's sometimes uh, questions in, in the area of, uh, regard, of prescribing hormone replacement therapy in, in gynae cancer, mm-hmm. and, and there may be a reluctance um, in, in a gynae cancer setting if a, if a patient carries a germline breast mutation um, or has had uh, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. However, in generally in the epithelial ovarian cancer um, group, we know that hormone replacement therapy doesn't influence recurrence rate and has actually been seen to be uh, safe. It was reviewed by Hopkins et al. and, and, and a, a, an ongoing Cochrane review, which shows that it's, it's generally safe in patients with epithelial ovarian cancer. So um, certainly systemic or, or more local hormone treatment you brought up the point uh, regarding the hormone replacement therapy as many patients will be listening to to this podcast uh, as well um now julie i wanted to ask you what what would be your recommendations for gynecologic oncologists who listen to this podcast and and they want to have further engagement and provide this type of care for for their patients uh, but they don't know how to go about it uh what, what would be your recommendations uh, for them important that, that clinicians sort of recognize it, acknowledge it, uh, recognize their own limitations as well. So I think, you know, for us here, we, we, we sort of, um, you know, I've gone on to do my specialist training, but I also train up others and, you know, find somebody who's got an interest in it. You know, not everybody's comfortable talking about sex and intimacy. You know, we have um, lots of, uh, you know, we utilize, don't we, within the, the a multidisciplinary team, lots of different people with different expertise. And so I think it's key that people identify those people within their team that, you know, might be appropriate to refer on to um, in the same way that we do for kind of mental health concerns. Um and then I think, you know, just finding finding your own, uh, you know, patter, we call it, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that you just find your own natural way that you can you can open up that conversation with a woman, which is, so I, you know, I often say to people, you know, this, uh, the treatments that we've given you, the, the fact that you've had a diagnosis, many people will experience changes in their, in their sex lives or mm. changes about how they feel. And mm-hmm. if that affects you, we really want to help you with that. So please let us know. There's some simple things we can do, um, and we can get you the right help. So I think, I think just being really clear about what you what you can say, what your limitations are, but certainly not shying away from the conversation just because you feel like you don't have all the answers. Yeah, I, I guess it goes back to the the example of the permission giving, um, and uh, I wanted to also then follow up. Uh, what would you recommend? to a patient who might be listening to this podcast as to how to approach the subject with their physician? 
Thank you, the acquisition. I've been listening to this great podcast. Now, <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know, I think also just I really want to say to patients, you know, please recognize that we are here for you. You know, you are, uh, we're here to look after you as a whole person. That does not just mean about your cancer. That means you as a whole person. And so, you know, to feel empowered that you can have that conversation, just maybe say, you know, I, I'm struggling with this area. I wonder if there's anything that could help. You know, I understand there might be some simple medical things, uh, but I also wonder if I can speak to somebody with some skills in this area. So, you know, just really making sure that it's a legitimate part of inside of, you know, people understand that it's, you know, it's a legitimate side effect of, of the treatment that they're receiving. And, um, you know, and to just as much as it is around the other physical symptoms that they might be experiencing, and uh, they should be getting the help that they need. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you know, certainly, I mean, it's been such a, a pleasure speaking with you both. And, uh, and I want to come to, to the, the last question uh, for Chloe. Um, Chloe, what are areas of future research in, in, in this particular field? Common problems that these women face. 
Chloe, Julia, uh, thank you so, so much. This has been really enlightening. I want to congratulate you for the work that you do. It really critical, critical work. Um, your institutions are very lucky to have both of you. Um, and uh, really has been a, a great learning experience for me. Once again, I want to thank you both for submitting your manuscript to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And I was wondering if you um, each would like to make any uh, closing remarks. We could start with Chloe. I'd just like to say thank you for um, being so supportive and, and open with our research and, and, and accepting it to, to start with, but also for inviting us to this podcast. We're really um, over the moon to, to kind of get our message out and to make it as accessible as possible to patients and, um, and anyone working with, with women with um, ovarian or, or gynae cancers. So thanks so much for, for having us on this, uh, this podcast. Um, it means a lot to us. Absolutely. Julia? Yeah, and I, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much. And, and um, I think what has been hugely supportive of me and Chloe in this work is actually engaging with other clinicians with a similar interest. So if this has really sparked your interest, then there's lots of people out there who want to help, um, you know, upskill you um, as clinicians or as if patients are listening, you know, that they want to help you. And so please just really um, go out there and look for those uh, people. And we would be delighted to hear from you if, if you need any support. Well, thank you both once again. Uh, it's been absolutely a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.